The Guardian. The coronavirus pandemic has shone a light on and deepened many of society's divisions. The health inequalities between rich and poor, minority ethnic and white populations, and the politics of the right and left. Over the past year, we've seen the emergence of Black Lives Matter protests following the death of the American George Floyd and the inevitable backlash from fights over the removal of statues to Blue Lives Matter rallies in support of the police. In the UK, some have marched against COVID-19 restrictions, whilst others have looked to scientists for guidance. Now both countries are heading towards events that could cement polarisations, the US election and the end of the Brexit transition period when the UK will finally exit the EU. So here at Science Weekly, we thought it was pertinent to return to an episode we made back in 2017 when I explored the divides between us and them and how we might bridge the widening gaps that separate us from those we disagree with. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back next week when our producer Madeline will be taking the podcast on a special journey to visit one of the most mysterious objects in the universe. See you then. A huge new Pew Research Center study of 10,000 American adults finds us more divided than ever, with personal and political polarization at a 20-year high. In October 2017, the Pew Research Center in America published a report showing that the partisan divide on political values, such as views on social benefits, race and immigration, had grown. They're less likely to compromise and often decide where to live, who to marry and who their friends should be, based on what they already believe. The division between Republicans and Democrats had already reached record levels under President Barack Obama. But now the gap has widened further to the largest in recent history. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum uh, to leave the EU. It's not just the US where 2017 has been defined by the lines that divide us. Here in Britain, the fallout from Brexit continues as millennials blame the aged despite the poor youth turnout for the vote. Meanwhile, the metropolitan elite blamed the bigots. The younger generation, the younger voters of ageism, anybody who's middle-aged or above is accused of, um, oh, well, you don't care, you don't matter, your votes matter, it's us, the, the, the next that are coming and all this. But how did we get here? How might we bridge these widening gaps? And more importantly, what happens if we fail? If the thing that you care most about is the urban-rural divide or the white minority divide or the religious secular divide. Whatever social divide gets you charged up, increasingly that's becoming associated with politics and political ideology. We're actually leading from a more and more polarized world to a world in which we can't even take each other's perspectives. We don't treat each other's views with, with, with any respect. And down the line, ultimately, we don't even have any empathy for these people. I'm Ian Sample. This is Science Weekly. I'll say that, like, even though I'll be directing questions at each of them. Hello, Miles Houston. Hi, Miles. It's Max Anderson here from The Guardian. 
To help me discuss what is happening in our divided world are two researchers who know the issues best. Than it is now, this is Miles Houston, Professor of Social Psychology and Public Policy at Oxford University. And joining us to give a stateside perspective... I'm Rob Willer. I'm a Professor of Sociology at Stanford University. Before we get to possible solutions, I wanted to know about the divide between us and them, or in-groups and out-groups. It's something Miles has dedicated much of his career to understanding. So I started by asking him about some of the most common groups that define us. Well, traditionally, people focused on a main small number of the, the kind of categories that almost automatically accessible in most social situations like race or ethnicity, gender and age. Those are the ones that it's almost impossible not to process in a typical social information processing task. But I guess the reason we're talking today uh, is because of the growth of new categories or old categories that have become more important, namely political and ideological ones, which are arguably becoming as important as those older, more classic ones. And is it inevitable for groups to be prejudiced against one another? It sometimes seems that way. No, I I don't think it is uh, inevitable. If you can create in your laboratory, you can create artificial groups and you can create what so-called minimal groups in which you can literally toss a coin and put half your participants in one group and half your participants in another group. People are prepared to favour their own group against the other group in situations like this. But that's not to say that it's inevitable because uh, because you've created a minimalist situation there. Uh, all that you've really got there is categorization. Um, so I don't think it's inevitable at all. So what actually tends to shape whether one group feels prejudiced against another or displays a prejudice? Status, whether you have higher or lower status. If you have lower status, whether you perceive that you can challenge for that higher status, whether you perceive that social categories in your society are permeable or not, whether you perceive that the status distinctions are legitimate or not, or you can go into the the real world again and you can say, well, you know, one of the most fundamental ways that we divide in group terms uh, is on scarce resources. Classic research by Muzava Sharif in the United States studied boys at a summer camp, typical kind of summer experience of young kids of a certain age. And unbeknown to these kids, they were actually being studied by a group of social psychologists who created these so-called zero-sum conflicts between two groups of boys. And once you start saying, right, there will be a tug-of-war competition, only one team can win, the other team must lose. That's what we mean by a zero-sum competition. This kind of manipulation will, will almost inevitably lead to conflict. As Miles suggests, some of these prejudices are as old as the hills. In 2017, we've seen seemingly endless cases of racism and sexism. But prejudice is also reshaping politics. I ask Rob Willer, what is separating the political groups in the U.S.? Well, to extend some of Miles' comments, the liberal, conservative, the left-right divide, in the U.S. anyway, uh, tends to correspond more and more every year to all of the other major bases of social differentiation. So if the thing that you care most about is the urban-rural divide or the white-minority divide or the religious-secular divide, whatever social divide gets you charged up, increasingly that's becoming associated with politics and political ideology. 
And the effect this has is to sort of turbocharge the political divide as a basis of animosity and group differentiation in the American context, and I think also in the UK and Western Europe to some extent. And another thing that's interesting about politics, because politics is sort of the, I don't know, the sort of theater upon which we have open moral debates, it allows for an open expression of disagreement, but also animosity and group rivalry in a way that isn't necessarily socially acceptable for other kinds of social differentiation. It's not okay to go on television and start yelling at somebody for being from the city or for being a minority or something like that. But it's totally acceptable to yell at a conservative or a liberal on television. You found some evidence, didn't you, for a kind of moral underpinning for these different political leanings. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We've done a lot of research in my lab that extends something called moral foundations theory, which is a, a theory from psychology about the sort of moral undergirding of political divisions. And these researchers uh, associated with this theory have found that liberals and conservatives in the U.S. And, and also just throughout the West have chronically different moral values. So one of the reasons that liberals and conservatives have such, you know, pitched disagreements and such nasty rivalry sometimes is that they have fundamentally different senses of what's right and what's wrong. So liberals care a lot about equality and social justice, protecting vulnerable groups from harm, and, and then conservatives care less about those things, not, not that they don't care at all about them, but just less. And then conservatives care about things that liberals don't care as much about, like patriotism, group loyalty, deference and respect for authority, protecting religious sanctity and moral purity. And because of this moral divide that lies underneath our political divide, liberals and conservatives tend to talk past one another when they go to make their case. She spent, let me tell you, she spent hundreds of millions of dollars on an advertising. You know, they get Madison Avenue into a room, they put names, oh, temperament, let's go after. I think my strongest asset, maybe by far, is my temperament. Have these groups, the political groups in the US at least, have they always been so vocally opposed? Or is there more polarization that you perceive today? I think that if you look at the research, there is a little bit more attitudinal polarization. So the people tend to be clustered a bit more around two ideologies in the US. And the distance between the attitudes of people on the left and right has increased a little bit. But much bigger has been a growth in what political scientists call affective polarization, which is essentially like emotional polarization, the depth of negative sentiment that the left feels for the right and the right feels for the left. And if you look at graphs of, you know, trends in sentiments between political groups in the U.S. over the last 20, 30 years, what you'll see is this sort of constant level of positivity towards one's own group and then a growing negativity, a steadily growing negativity towards the other group. So it didn't used to be the case that the in-group bias, the tendency to view your own group more positively emotionally, was that big, and now it's pretty enormous uh, to such an extent that liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, avoid interacting with one another, avoid befriending one another, don't want their kids to marry someone that supports the other party, and so on. Why do you think that is? Why has that extent of that animosity, if you like, maybe that's too strong, but the extent of that difference become so large? I think there's a, a lot of factors that have played into this. And, and of course, some of it 
is once the ball gets rolling downhill, it can get out of hand, you know, as norms of discourse fall apart. But I think that the internet likely played a role in disinhibiting political conversation. You know, people say things on the internet they wouldn't say in person, and, and that's that's not good. People also can more selectively choose their social network, which both shapes the information that they get and also the way they interpret it and the views that they're exposed to. When your social network is determined by geography and your workplace and, you know, the people you went to school with, you get a little bit more chance exposure to people of different ideologies than if your social exposure is determined by a news feed that you can self-censor, you know, whenever you see something you don't like. But I think that it's also the case that media segmentation has played a huge role. So it's much more the case that if you're on the left or right in the U.S. and really anywhere in the developed world, you can select into a media environment that's sort of tailored to your sentiments. Does this explain, yeah. when you look at hierarchies, networks, and the struggle of global power, can it explain Brexit and to the election of Donald Trump? The book does that and shows that if it hadn't been for the social network platforms, particularly Facebook, it would have been almost impossible for the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign to succeed. If I could jump in there, that's a, um, Rob. That's a really interesting article when you when you think about the UK because the UK is still um, largely fed by the BBC, and the BBC um, ostensibly does its best to to provide a very neutral picture, and it's probably doing a really good job if both sides think it's biased. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. I suspect that we're not under under the same kind of influences there. But, but I mean, maybe, maybe you, you think that's something that, that's coming over here and that will further, further polarize us. Because, of course, exactly what you've described um, has been so much more evident in the lead-up to our Brexit vote and uh, the whole debate about whether to remain in the EU or not. Uh, and everything that, that we've learned from American colleagues and political scientists about echo chambers and about the kinds of polarization that you're talking about have all, I think, been found to be true um, for our for our major debate of the times as well. Rob, just on the media situation in the US, does it seem to be social media that are having a major impact here? Or is it actually these other more established media, things like CNN and Fox and other news outlets on TV, maybe primarily? So this debate is not, I would say, fully resolved among American academics uh, yet. So my colleague here at Stanford, Matthew Genskow, has recently done some research with, uh, with colleagues showing that amount of Internet usage doesn't really predict individual level polarization outcomes, uh, which is very interesting and challenges our everyday intuitions about what's driving polarization. It feels like the Internet and social media have made it worse. And... I don't know that we have to totally undo that intuition in light of those findings. I think that uh, it may be that there's just multiple forces operating on different people. I'd say there's probably the best evidence that television segmentation has played the biggest role. or That's, that's I think, the most compelling evidence is especially that Fox News beginning in the late 1990s played a role in driving the U.S. electorate to the right. But I have to say that I still believe, you know, and I uh, maybe I'm waiting for the data to catch up with this. I, it just seems hard to believe that social media isn't playing a role for those who are heavily engaged in political content on it. My colleague here in the law school at Stanford, Nate Persilli, who's a scholar of the internet and democracy, 
especially in the U.S. context, he's fond of pointing out that the Facebook feed seems almost designed to encourage a sort of subjective, emotion-laden, tribal perception of objective information about politics in the world. You know, if you go back 30 years, you'd have one way of interacting with your family and friends about, you know, their new kids and the things going on in their lives and ways of sending social approval back and forth with friends and family. And then you'd have other means, you know, like the television, the radio, the newspaper for finding out ostensibly objective information about the world. And now those two things are blended. And, you know, you'll be scrolling through your feed and you'll see pictures of, you know, your brother's new puppy. And then the next thing you see is the article on Brexit. And you're getting it from your brother, and you're getting it packaged with his endorsement, his opinion, his take. And it just encourages, it's almost designed, unintentionally, I assume, to encourage a very subjective, emotional interpretation of the news. As Rob points out, while the role played by these new forms of media, such as Facebook and Twitter, isn't yet clear, Intuition would suggest that they must play some sort of role. But even without pointing the finger at social media, older forms of news and the political leaning of their output most certainly has and does have an impact. So perhaps we have a good idea of how we actually got here. After this short break, we'll hear how we might reach across these divides with something known as contact theory. That you could bring together members of different groups under appropriate conditions likely to generate positive contact and that positive contact would lead to more positive attitudes. We'll also hear about another tactic that builds on what is called moral foundations theory. If you want to make a persuasive argument that's based in moral values, Uh, you're better off connecting a political position to your audience's moral values. And those values may be very different from your own. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Science Weekly. I'm Ian Sample. Before the break, we heard from Rob Willer about political divisions in America and what might underpin them including something called moral foundations theory. We also heard from Miles Houston about the us-and-them phenomena and how divisions might arise between so-called in-groups and out-groups. It's this division that much of Miles's work explores, including how to overcome it through something called contact theory. Contact theory. Can you tell us a bit about I asked Miles where the theory comes from and what it tells us. The idea came primarily from the American social psychologist Gordon Allport, uh, writing in 1954, uh, and it gave us faith in the idea that you could bring together members of different groups. At that time, the main focus was on racial groups, that you could bring together members of different groups under appropriate conditions likely to generate positive contact and that positive contact would lead to more positive attitudes. Subsequently, uh, the evidence for the 
approach has grown and grown. Uh, we had a meta-analysis in 2006 of over 500 studies showing a reliable effect across all these studies and showing the effect works as well, not just for racial and ethnic groups, but for religious groups, for age-based groups, groups based on sexual orientation, and so on. And I think there's going to be an interesting future development. There are some studies on contact between political groups, and I think the, the kind of issues that uh, we're discussing today, today with uh, Rob suggests to me that, that there will be a, a, a very fruitful future avenue of research on political engagement, ways to promote contact between people across political lines who wouldn't otherwise typically come into contact. I'm interested in what is meant by contact in this context. So when Gordon Allport first talked about contact, he had in mind a very specific kind of contact, which is what what the person in the street would understand, namely face-to-face exchanges of information, uh, the ability to move beyond stereotypes, the ability to get to know somebody as a person, as an individual. But over time, uh, the view of contact has changed to include a wider notion of, of, of contact. So we talk now about indirect as well as direct contact. So we talk about so-called vicarious contact, where you watch members of your own group and another group interacting. You might watch or you might listen. Uh, You might have parasocial contact where, again, you you get the opportunity to listen uh, or to watch those intergroup exchanges through radio or television. Uh, If I give a very British example, which won't mean a thing to to Rob, I don't imagine, many people of a certain age and generation in, in Britain still listen to a radio soap opera called The Archers that appears every evening for 15 minutes on Radio 4. And this is a traditionally a story of village life in England, and it was traditionally a story of white village life in England. And now, over time, um, this radio play uh, has incorporated a gay couple, so people who don't know any gay people or maybe people who had a particular view of gay people get to identify with these characters, get to learn about their lives, maybe get their stereotypes challenged. There's also a Church of England Anglican vicar who's married to an Asian woman. So people also get this indirect exposure to the idea that it might be acceptable to people who previously didn't think it was acceptable for people to marry across cultural and religious lines. Is there any evidence that that kind of um, narrative that kind of exposure to those ideas reduces people's previous prejudices. There absolutely is. When I um, when I first heard about the studies on extended contact, uh, I thought this was such a uh, an indirect form of of being linked to people who are different that I could hardly believe it, it would would work. And um, being a good empiricist, I promptly set about collecting some data myself. In 1997, the first paper on this was published. Um, we've actually just completed a meta-analysis of all the available published and unpublished work on extended contact, and we can show reliable effect that's almost the same size as that for direct contact. So yes, it does work. Rob, you had some interesting. It's incredible to think that this kind of indirect contact might be as effective as meeting face to face. persuasive, depending on how they frame them. But as Rob Willer explains, how we reach out to those on the other side needs careful consideration too. When we studied liberals and conservatives' persuasive appeals to one another, one thing we found right away was that they tended to make 
persuasive arguments, when they reached out to try to try to convince one another to see things their own way, they tended to make arguments in terms of their own moral values. So liberals would make arguments about topics like same-sex marriage in terms of equality and fairness and social justice. And conservatives would make arguments in favor of, say, making English uh, the official language of the United States. They would make arguments in terms of patriotism. But we find that those kinds of arguments are not particularly persuasive. Even if they're tempting to make, they're, the, they're your reason for holding some position. So it's very intuitive to you to make that argument. But because they are moored, anchored in moral values that your target audience doesn't particularly endorse, uh, they tend to be unpersuasive. So liberals aren't going to be persuaded by a patriotism-based argument particularly. Uh, conservatives won't be persuaded by an equality-based argument. So we sought to test what might be more effective arguments. We um, developed what we call uh, a technique called moral reframing which involves taking a political position and then making an argument for it in terms of your audience's moral values. And this can produce very new kinds of political appeals. So, for example, we tested a persuasive argument about same-sex marriage that was targeted at conservatives that made the case for same-sex marriage in terms of patriotism and group loyalty. And this argument said that you know, gay Americans are, are loyal, patriotic Americans who serve in the military and contribute to our country and contribute to the economy and so on. And, you know, really made this try to tighten the link between patriotism and support for gay rights in the U.S. And what we found was that exposure to that argument increased conservative support for same-sex marriage relative to either not hearing an argument at all or hearing a more conventional argument in terms of equality. And we've used the same method in a whole series of experiments now on issues from environmental protection to military spending and national health insurance. And we consistently find the same takeaway, which is that if you want to make a persuasive argument that's based in moral values, uh, you're better off connecting a political position to your audience's moral values. And those values may be very different from your own. And so it might not be intuitive to you, but it's very likely to be more effective. One of the interesting things to me there is that you, of course, are, are in your experiments. You're, uh, you're coming up with your rationale of what will work. You're testing it experimentally. In the real world, of course, to do that, for me, for example, to provide arguments that would fit the moral foundations of someone very different from myself would require a degree of perspective taking, which seems to me to be so often absent and to be increasingly less likely the more we are polarized. And th does that worry you also that we're, we're actually leading from a more and more polarized world to a world in which we can't even take each other's perspectives? We don't treat each other's views with, with, with any respect. And down the line, ultimately, we don't even have any empathy for these people. No, I think that's absolutely spot on. And we've been doing some research on perspective taking and empathic concern across party lines in the U.S. and finding that you know the, the further you go left or right, uh, in the American electorate, you know, the less, of course, political empathy you find, just as, as you said. And I think you're exactly right that to, to make an argument like this, you'd need to take the perspective of the other person. But so many factors are conspiring to make that difficult. Your own feelings towards the outgroup, you know, stand in the way. Uh, your exposure to the outgroup is, is less than ever. Uh, and so it's, the, it's exactly the kind of thing we don't do right now. Yeah. 
So appreciating the other's perspective is something perhaps we can all do in the fight against polarization. The only problem is that it doesn't seem to come too naturally to us, as Mars pointed out. Don't speak English and don't contribute. So what does this mean for the future? Rob, you're a bit of a movie buff, and I know you've described the situation we're kind of in now as like the second act in a buddy cop movie where we're sort of at our most divided. Are you optimistic that we're going to make it to the third act where we come together stronger than ever? I I try to be, yeah. And I I think that one thing that I find really encouraging in the U.S. is there's been a sort of explosion of sentiment among Americans that the political divide has gotten way, way too too great. Uh, you see the sentiment on the left and the right and that we got to do something about it. And you see people uh, united. I mean, if there's one thing maybe that unites Americans politically right now, it's this sense that the divide is so bad that it's poisoning the country and that it's paralyzing the government. And so as a result, we can't use government to work on even shared social problems because nobody wants to work together. And, you know, we have communities and families being divided uh, needlessly. You know, there's there's no good reason we can't connect despite these political differences. And so I think, you know, when you see these organizations that are emerging that want to try to bring people together across the political divide, I believe there's a sort of force that's emerging that favors political integration and civility. And, and my hope is that in the next decade that we're going to see that we went all the way to the brink and then people said, this is too much. It doesn't work to go this direction. Let's, let's tack back and reintegrate with one another. Glancing back through history, it's clear there have been periods of greater and lesser polarization. And perhaps this is just part of that cycle. But what happens if we carry on without tacking back? Something I'd put first to Rob Willer. In the US, it feels like the basic fabric of society is at stake. I think in the US, the perhaps the most alarming trend that's emerged recently is this turn away from reality. Uh, this this ability that politicians have now in, in the American context to speak blatant untruths and then that can't be effectively checked because political silos are so isolated from one another that there's no shared understanding of the truth and people are so accustomed to being given political information that they're just sort of allowed to believe, you know, because they want to. We have to tack back from that desperately. Uh, When we lose that, that shared understanding of reality, it's hard to see where this would end. To my mind, that that's that's the thing that's at stake in the American context right now that I think matters most. Both of us have mentioned earlier in the discussion the importance of empathy So taking the perspective of the other person, developing that empathy. A colleague of mine, Tanya Singer, who who works at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, she's developed a very interesting line of neuroscientific work on compassion and the neural basis for compassion. And I think where we're going to end up is that people will not have this fellow feeling for other people. Economists are even beginning to talk about this too, the need for, for a kind of caring economics where, where we are willing to help out those people in society who, who most need it. So I think, it, it, without wishing to sound overly dramatic, I do think that the future of our societies and the way we understand and use democracy is at stake. Special thanks this week to Miles Houston and Rob Willer. 
you've got any questions, queries or feedback, please get in touch via our email address, scienceweekly at theguardian.com. I'm Ian Sample. This is Science Weekly. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.